In diversity, there is beauty and there is strength. Be the best version of yourself because somebody else is already taken. Only the fearless can be great. Failure is a choice. Don't be afraid to go that extra mile because when you do, you realise there aren't that many people out there. Welcome to She Has a Goal in Mind, brought to you each week by Darcy Morris and Gabriella Dukes. This week, we spoke to ex-international Welsh rugby player and now founder and CEO of My Future, Gemma Harlett. Gemma told us about her career earning 35 caps for Wales, standing up for the representation of women's rugby in Wales and using tech for good by creating an app for the next generation. We hope you enjoy listening and don't forget to like, subscribe and follow us on social media at A Goal In Mind Podcast. Hello. Hi, are you okay? Yeah, very well, thanks. How are you? Good, yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's lovely to actually finally meet you and see you. <laughs> meet in, uh, in brackets, yeah. Meet virtually. Yeah. So I'm obviously Darcy. Gabriella is actually under the weather today. So she's just going to listen in. It's usually both of us that do the podcast, but it's just me today. Oh, no, Gabriella, I hope you feel better. But she's tucked up under a quilt with her. <laughs> thank you very much. I want to say thank you on behalf of both of us for coming on to chat to us. For our listeners, then, you're a retired Welsh international rugby player and you've earned 35 caps for Wales and you're now a tech entrepreneur. So can you tell me where it began? Um, did you did you always have a talent for rugby and where did that start then from when you were younger? I couldn't tell you where I couldn't pinpoint it. Um, I've literally grown up in a community that's like all rugby and I got older uncles and male cousins and I've, we've always mm. grown up with a rugby ball um, so it wasn't anything alien to me um, I always played with the boys on the schoolyard <laughs> at break time the only thing that was strange I guess which I didn't realize was strange until I went to university was that there wasn't a team that I could play on because I'd always played as part of the, the boys in school. And then by the time I went to university, I went to university in Preston in England. And there was, um, I remember we walking through the uh, the student fair, you know, the freshers fair, and there's all these different stalls. And I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if there's a rugby one. And then before I know it, this rugby ball just comes flying out of the air. Um, and I grab it because I happen to be wearing a Welsh rugby shirt <laughs> to uh, Freshers playing in England. So um, that was it. That that was kind of when I started playing rugby properly. But, um, you know, growing up, I'd always had a rugby ball around me. Is that what you were interested in then? Was it just rugby or what did you study at university? Sports. So, uh, yeah, um, I was one of those that didn't know what I wanted to do. So let's go to degree and, and see where that takes me. Um, kind of just like the idea of um going to university and having some fun um I think you know I was never academic but um I always kind of did all right with coursework um crap in exams but um when I was in sixth form you know my teacher said you, should, you know these options look good for you and it was through her advice that I ended up going to university um yeah but you know a sports degree is just to have fun right <laughs> So you're actually part of the uh, Welsh team that won the Triple Crown in 2009 and played in the 2010 Women's Rugby World Cup. So can you tell me more about that period of time over those two years? And obviously it must have been a, like, a huge milestone for you in your rugby career. So what did it take to get there and, and how did you get there? Uh, do you know what, that Triple Crown game, I'll... no, it was the England game time before that. So we, we beat Scotland um, and we were playing England um, before we went on to beat Ireland for the Triple Crown. I remember being in, and I'm off your story a little bit because I have to talk about this. I remember being in the hotel before the game and just looking around at breakfast time when we had like the tea club, which was the older players, uh, Mel Berry, Kifty, Flowey, and uh, the girls from London, Claire Donovan and Claire Hogan and that. So really super experienced girls. They were called the tea club because they mm -hmm. brought their little caddies everywhere we went. Um, with biscuits or um biscuits and, and tea and little you know sugar sachets and um so they were the tea club I remember sitting there and I went and sat with them and I was just like do you feel really calm and they were like do you know what? I don't think I've ever felt so calm before in an international we were playing England in Taswell um and we just knew we were going to win um 
the referee was there that morning and Jason, our coach, said to me, said, go and just, just have a little chat with the coach and, you know, see how um, the referee, go and see, you know, what his thoughts are and, you know, try and figure out if he's, um, you know, try and plant some seeds, uh, you know, with a nice team or whatever. So I went over to the, I, I took my breakfast, I had to have a second breakfast then and I took it over and I sat with the, the referee and I was like, oh, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. I got talking to him. And I spent about 15 minutes talking to him. And I think he felt uncomfortable then and left. I looked over to Jason. He gave me a nod and a wink. And I just think there was just this feeling we were going to beat England that day. And I've never had it, not in any other game I've ever played in, whether it's club, region or country. I just knew that was um, we were going to win that day. And ultimately, that's what set us up then for the following match against Ireland to win the Triple Crown. And we were full of confidence going into that one as well. And I think that was, you know, the year before the World Cup where we'd been building three years um, and it was a combination of, you know, we got the, the selection right and there's a lot of belief. And we, we, you know, we had this nickname for everybody that we were a family and it really felt like that. Um, and probably the most confident um, we'd ever been as a Welsh squad. Yeah. So do you think that kind of family um, environment, the team camaraderie helped as well, helped with you believing that you could go, go through with it and win? Yeah, absolutely. You have to have that. I mean, when, when you sacrifice so much off the field uh, to perform on it and, you know, you you have to sacrifice when you're going, when you're going through a campaign, you have to sacrifice, you know, weddings, birthdays, weekends out, your mates are off doing all sorts of things and, and you're up going to the gym before work, going training after work. Um, you miss so much during that time, but you also get so close to this, you know, this group of 30 girls and you know the wider coaching setup as well it does feel like family and when you're in that little six nations bubble it goes so fast and you, it feels like you don't see anybody else out of it but you know you're going through your, your job Monday to Friday but it's, it's in a daze because that night you're you know you're in squad training or something or you've got to hit the gym and, and your mind's on reviewing the game that's just been and then your mind's on focus on the game that's coming so even though you are working for you know that six nations campaign is such a bubble and all you really care about is getting back to your teammates and and preparing for the next match it must help that you're all like like-minded as well we've got something in common in that we're you know we're willing to put Absolutely. You put your body on the line for anybody in, in the same shirt as you, for sure, whether that's club or international. But yeah, when it comes to international, you know, I, I think it's easier at an international level to play. And yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I really struggled when we come out to Six Nations to go back to our club. I love my club. I was a one club girl. I'd always played for Ponaclean for 15 years. But to go back to them, it was so much harder to play in unstructured kind of, you know, Ah, rugby with you know headless chicken kind of rugby than it was to play a senior level a national level but in national level you've got those um what do you say characters where and there's been so many over the years so when you first enter that squad it's like it took me two years to speak I don't think anybody would believe that of me now but it took me two years before I felt comfortable speaking up in training and then you kind of earn your stripes, right? And you get the respect of like the T club and the older players. But yeah, there's definitely some characters in a in a setup like that. You also captained Cardiff Blues women as well, didn't you? And and I read that you actually made history being the first woman to captain the blue side at Cardiff Arms Park. So how did it make how did it make you feel making history? And was it important for you during that time being a woman? I didn't know at the time. I found this out. Um, so Cardiff Blues told me the other day when they, um, another story, but they've got the new players uh, legends wall down there. But yeah, I didn't know at the time. Um, and I guess it didn't factor in because before I was selected for the national squad, I'd seen Wales play there. And I'd seen Kylie Wilson and, and Mel Berry lead out Wales at the Arms Park. Um, so it never crossed my mind that, you know, the women hadn't played there before. But, you know, when, when you reflect, when you finish playing, you, you see, like, you know, we, we played on training pitches and, you know, Glamorgan Wanderers and other clubs around Cardiff. But, we yeah, we never played the Arms Park until, what was it, the 2012 season, I think it was. And, yeah, and I had no idea. And when I led the club, the team out on, onto that, I had the first Cardiff Blues woman's captain to lead the team out of the Arms Park. That's, that's quite something, right? But yeah, I had no idea until about a year ago. So since retiring from rugby, you've actually dabbled in being a pundit, haven't you, for Sky Sports? And you did the 2014 Rugby World Cup. 
and commentated on the Women's Six Nations. So how did you get into that? Was it just kind of like an alley out of sport or did you want to be in the media? Uh, no, I had no, um, I had no intention of going into that. It was, um, I happened to be free for the 2014 World Cup because I wasn't selected. And just before that, I played for the Nomads. So that had got me on the radar um, of some of the kind of higher profile rugby people in London um, and widened my network a little bit by playing for the Nomads, which were the equivalent of the Barbarians, the Women's Barbarians team. So it was just kind of through that net that network, I think. The opportunity came about. They were looking for somebody to represent more of the home nations for the World Cup. And I just had a phone call saying, would you like to go down into the studio and, and do some punditry? But, I, you know, I'm, I'm a yes person. <laughs> so I, I said yes. And then I thought, oh, Christ, I've got to actually go and do that now. So, but I actually really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I really like um, commentating more. I like being in the thick of the action, being able to, you know, really reveal what's going on on the field. So when naturally when the, the opportunity to go as a, a second voice in commentary come around, I think I did that for maybe two or three seasons. I enjoyed that far more than being in the studio and doing the analysis. Yeah. Yeah. You like being in the action. Yeah, I find that much better. You know, how, uh, like everybody praises Warburton now for being, you know, the pundit. And that's a massive skill to be able to kind of take it all in 40 minutes of rugby and then digest it. I can't do that. I don't have that skill. But as it's happening, um, I, I like to be in the thick of it as it's happening and talk about, you know, how that scrum went or, you know, how we lost that line out while we've now lost 20 metres of field possession or something like that. That's more interesting for me. Well, I think definitely commentary is definitely a skill. But I think, you know, if you you play rugby, you're going through it in your head anyway, especially when you have to captain, you know, you have to make such quick decisions. And a lot of it is based on maybe two, three, four phases that have just passed. And then you're going to make a decision what's going to happen at the next line or you want to speak to the ref. And you have to take all this evidence with you when you do that, um, evidence from in, in the match. So it, I, commentating for me is just, you know, the thinking you do in a match, but you're saying it out loud and, hope that people are following along at home yeah <laughs> so when you actually did that did you have any backlash uh, because you see it quite a lot now don't you like on twitter and stuff when there's women pundits i know things are changing now but did you have any any backlash or or any comments during that time on social media not not from my punditry um but from playing absolutely and not so much on social media it's more to my face um so yeah so um Whilst I was playing, I was also a PE teacher. Um, and in that role, I'm obviously coming across a lot of men. And I was a coaching as well. I was coaching the college's national team. So come across a lot of opinionated men in a, kind of a rugby space. So, um, and, you know, a lot of it was said in banter, but a lot of it was a bit like, you know, you know, Wales women lost again then, or you lost against Scotland or, you know. You, you lost to Italy, why are you so shit? And things like that. Apologies if we're not allowed to say on this. <laughs> and I used to get that all the time. And, and, you know, I worked in a college as well where you got 17, 18, 19-year-old boys trying to act up in class. So I took some stick from them. I've always been in a male-dominated environment from playing to, to my job and coaching to now working in business and in tech. Uh, I've always been in a male-dominated I've always kind of... I don't think I've ever felt disrespected or anything like that but you know banter comes in all of them roles so I've kind of got yeah I've got broad shoulders yeah do you think you have to be a, a certain type of person to kind of thrive in that sort of environment or do you think you've just like grown thick skin I obviously you said a lot of it's been through banter but some of it can be you know sly digs to certain situations but do you think you have to be a certain type of person or does that just come with it just just happens there's you know in, in all the teams I've played with there's every kind of person you know they, they're all emotional different levels of emotional intelligence different levels of reactive um emotional wise as well um different levels of anger and frustration um you know it takes a lot a lot for me to get angry I can't remember the last time I was angry and for me to not be sarcastic rather than you know to lose my temper is, is just not me so you know I can only speak for for what I've come across but I know there has been people that have struggled Um, you know I remember I've, I've seen girls cry because of the comments they've had either on social media or of colleagues or you know 
men at the club type thing when it comes to rugby. So I'd like to say, it, it, you know, thick skin is enough, but I'm not sure there is always going to be. You know, if you've had a bad day and one comment from somebody. I remember actually in my last commentary, I was leaving the Arms Park and I was getting to the car park um, and it was just a quip from somebody. Oh, oh, I hope you didn't waste money on that match or something. And Wales just played England at the Arms Park and rightly so, the, you know, England were the most dominant team and, you know, would all, you know, Wales didn't look well on the score sheet or on the field. So it was a, you know, it was a bit of banter in, in that, but it honestly, I felt this anger inside me. I felt my blood boil and it led, it led me to write a blog about it, actually, about it's not actually the, the girls on the field's fault and the fact that people are blaming the girls on the field really got to me and I got really defensive. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure that answers your question, but definitely thick skin and you definitely need a support network around you to help kind of take some of that away. I know you've been quite publicly outspoken about how the WRU have failed women's rugby. So what I want to ask is why do you think this? Why, why do you feel like you needed to speak out and raise awareness around this? Can you just give me a bit more context about, you know, why it's so important to you? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to it's, we all know this. If you play rugby in Wales, um, you know this to be true. Um, but it's kind of like it's in a closed bubble. People outside of rugby or people who just have, you know, a small affinity with the game wouldn't know this of the women's side. Um, and, you know, walk into the car park after doing my last commentary and that guy saying, oh, hope we didn't waste money on that. And that's where it came from. I was like, I, you know, he walked, he carried on walking. I wanted him to stay so that I could blurb out this 15 years worth of history onto him. But he walked off. So instead, I sat with it for a week and then I wrote it because I was supposed to do the Scotland game, but obviously the Scotland game got cancelled because of the coronavirus. Um, and that was going to be my last ever commentary then. So I was, you know, officially that was my last when I was walking away from rugby last year. Um, so I just felt I had all this still inside me left to say. And I just, I had to put it down. And I put it down as a blog for myself, but obviously it got picked up and then, you know, it kind of blew up a little bit. But um, it's it's all true, and you know it's reflecting on that game England v Wales, and you know the direction that England have gone in, and the kind of I don't want to say stagnation, but the level Wales have stayed at, and it's not the girls on the pitch. They give everything. They're far more professional now than when I was playing, and you know they've learned more. They're more athletic. That they give more. Um, you know they have to travel to England to get quality games you know, each weekend and it's just, there's all this, this 15 years worth of dismantling what, you know, the WRU inherited. And I just felt that that needed to be said to, to back the girls on the field, but also, you know, WRU going on about, you know, we're doing this for, this for the women. And actually you dismantled all of this stuff and you built a little bit. It doesn't replace what you've dismantled. And I just, it came to a head and I just thought, I've got to put this out there. Yeah. Um, so I did. What kind of response did you have from that then? I had lots and lots of private messages and phone calls, <laughs> as you can imagine, for people that couldn't that couldn't celebrate what I'd said openly. Um, lots of, one of my favourite comments was on social media, actually. It was some guy I'd never known tagged in the old English coach who was the coach when a lot of this stuff in in the blog um mentioned about how we you know gone into the we've been because we were a separate arm mainly funded by sports Wales. we got brought into the WRU we thought this was a turning point we thought this is really going to like excel the women's side in Wales and we can be fully integrated with the WRU and we thought this is it this is the 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 step up that the women's game is going to get. We're going to be on par with at least the under 20s now. Can you imagine it? And we were really excited. Um, but ultimately, it didn't turn out that way. And the English coach at the time um, was tagged in a quote. It was, sorry, was tagged in a, a message underneath uh, on Twitter. And he said, uh, he, you know, said something along the lines of, you know, she's absolutely spot on. It's such a shame that this happened to the WIU because we were really strong 
you know, we were we were not just an up and coming national side. We were a national side that was that was winning, and other nations were looking at us as a as a structure. So, it's little comments from people that knew that was you know that was validation for me. And then all the the private DMs of people going, "Oh my god, <laughs> I'm so glad somebody's had the balls to say it." Yeah, there was no official response from the WRU. Um, it didn't need to be. It was never. It was never meant as, you know, an attack on the WRU. It was an ask of. It was me. It was like, okay, I'm. I've officially hung up my my boots. Hung up a few years before, but I've hung up my microphone now. This is me walking away from rugby. This is the legacy that's left, and this is my ask. And at the at the time, it was Ryan Jones was in the role. It was like, like it was it was a giving him you know the bigger picture and saying you know please do better like this this legacy is in your hands basically and you can either go down the path you're going down or really create a step change and make something different happen and and that's how it was written um but we have to go through the history of it to get to that ask at the end i have to ask what are your thoughts on world rugby's decision to postpone the women's world cup and allow the men to play it's different stuff I can see it I can understand why they do it it's different circumstances because the men are pro um the women cannot go into isolation you know they all have, most of them have full-time jobs they cannot go into isolation for a, a big chunk of the year um and it's asking a lot because there's only two professional teams in the world so to ask a whole tournament worth of teams to do that you can understand it um yeah I think I think a lot of us seen it come in you know, there's a, there's a group of us ready to go. We, you know, got our WhatsApp group together, some former players to go and watch. So we're disappointed from a supporter's point of view, but uh, fully understand it. Yeah. So do you think that it, in women's rugby as as a whole, do you think that women are still underrepresented and do you think there is still a long way to go? Oh, there's always a long way to go. Until we have parity, there's, there'll always be women fighting to achieve that right um for me if you look at what England's been able to achieve and a lot of that has come from you know I remember a conversation in 2005 six maybe you know the English rugby development officers came to Wales to see what Wales were doing and to learn from the Welsh model so not just parity in terms of gender but parity in terms of what other nations are able to achieve you know if there's geographically there's, there's a bridge between us and England there's nothing else really you know it's we, why can't we be on parity with them I think a lot needs to be done at club and regional level in Wales I think we can't rely on our best players getting game time in England uh, we're putting our best assets you know as a, as a business owner it, it drives me insane you would never give another organization your best assets and trust that they're going to give you access to that at any point so it's the same for rugby right we're giving them our best players and we're trusting them that they're going to get game time and we're trusting that they're not going to say at any point when they want say stop this now no more welsh girls getting game time over our english girls and then that's it our top players are not playing um we are entrusting another nation with our best assets and it, you know it blows my mind so from a development point of view, what we need in terms of that parity is we need to continue developing the age grades and we've got to invest in our club system. So, you know, for the last three, four years, it's been Swansea dominating, Ponteclean coming in with a couple of great wins here and there. But, you know, other than that, when I first started playing, there was five six really strong teams that you know any one of them could win any given day but you know Swansea is and Ponaclean a favorite for every every game they play and they're winning matches by 70 points you know and they're having it's just like a training uh, game for them so the club needs strengthening and then that then will naturally feed into the regions which will feed into our own national kind of um player set up here we don't need to rely on another country yeah that said until that is all in place 
and we we get either the the massive development and funding put into the clubs in the region we have no choice but to ensure our girls are playing over in England. So you're founder and CEO of My Future. So I'll, I'll let you explain more, but it's basically for school leave, oh, people are school leavers of Generation Z, isn't it? And Generation Z is, is it the, it's the newest generation? After the millennials, yes. So uh, those born between 95 and 2010, generally. Right, Okay. It just uh, prevents them from leaving school and allowing them to have better futures and careers. And am, am I right in saying it? you advocate for people who are underprivileged and can't go to university? Yeah, so uh, it came from a need for my classroom. So no intention of leaving teaching. I love my job. You know, PE teacher, rugby coach, living the dream, right? Um, especially on sunny days. I'd yeah, always be outdoors yeah. in my shorts loving life so um but it was in that role I obviously thought I had too much time on my hands so they, they give me the careers provision um and I was kind of elevated to level mm-hmm. three coordinator so I was in charge of all our levers and what they were going to do next and it was in that role that you know we'd have 23 yeah uh 16 17 18 year olds in a computer room with 14 working computers one mouse is missing and you know they just like oh miss Jem, can I just do it on my phone please it'd be so much easier and I never push back against that. If it helps us achieve what we want to achieve that lesson, yes, let's get our phones out, let's do it. Um, but also mindful that yeah. my K- my one KPI was to how many are we getting to university this year and how many are doing the UCAS application. And bear in mind, I worked in Philly, so I had, you know, some catchment from the heads of the valleys and less affluent, um, deprived areas. So, um for me trying to push everybody down the university route never sat right and I didn't know nothing about the world of work really I, I went to university did a bit of traveling and playing rugby and then went back to teaching um so I had to learn as well about the world of work and it became so evident that you know to push these young people um towards university and the way the world of work was going we we didn't need to do that but what I wanted to do was just kind of mm-hmm. ignite something in them and show them that there's so many opportunities out there from you know apprenticeships jobs other courses you know going on to scholarships in the states and all sorts so you know we achieve loads of different things like that but what was missing was um for those who are going to university there's UCAS and it's nice and easy and it's a transition piece that everybody's comfortable in using and it's done for them but we didn't have the equivalent for those who are not going to university so it was a case of, right, we'll go on Indeed, we'll, you know, look at the job centre, we'll Google something, did your dad know someone? It was always those kind of conversations. And I felt the parity was off. So I wanted to challenge the status quo and say, right, OK, you guys are not going to university. How can we give give you something that would be as good as you cast, but for the world of work? And I thought I was going to change the world. I downloaded this idea, this Facebook for, <laughs> this Facebook for careers. Um, so I was like, you're all gonna can you imagine if we did this, so you'd all have your own profile and you can scroll up and down and you know, you can read all about different job descriptions and you can, you know, do all this interview preparation stuff. And they all kind of looked at me and went, huh? And I thought, right, I'm a teacher here now trying to find like a solution. They loved the idea of something being so simple and curated for them. Um, but obviously I'd not come from a tech background at all. And, you know, conversation after conversation with these trying to you know come up with a solution and they were just like you know what can't we just have like a tinder for career that would be lush so all my matches I just swipe left and right to all these jobs courses apprenticeships volunteering positions that match me and that was it I just kind of I ran with that and we got I used it in enterprise lessons as well got all the kind of doodles together we got all like you know how we could look what it could do and I took it to um my boss my bosses and said wouldn't it be great if we could do this for our class and they were like, who can't make tech? Bloody hell. Brexit and redundancies and funding. So I took it to Careers Wales and said, hey, Careers Wales, this is what my class would love. And I, I, it's like, this is three years of working with young people now. It's got a massive collection of data. And said, for a teacher, this would make my job amazing. And for these young people to just highlight all the great opportunities and make them feel like they're empowered and, and a match to so many stuff. They went, oof, Brexit and oof redundancies and another academic year went by and it got to 2016 by this point and I just went oh do you know what if it's not now then when and it's not me then who 
Um, and I just took redundancy and very, very naively trotted off into the business world with my little redundancy package and said, okay, let's make this happen. And um, I was so naive. I'm glad I was naive though, because if I realized what it was going to take, I probably wouldn't have done it. But when you're naive enough and, you know, I made a promise to two and a half thousand young people that I was going to go make this Tinder for careers happen. Um, so I couldn't go back on my promise. Um, and I went all in. And that was in 2016. And it's iterated a few versions now because tech never stops, right? And the more young people we interact with, the more kind of less functions they want. What's really been really surprising is they just don't want the fast. Just give me what I match with. Let me swipe and let the application be done. So within like, you know, you're watching friends on telly or something, the adverts come on, pick up my phone. I'll go, oh yeah, swipe, 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 done. I've just applied for four jobs and ignored one. It's all about convenience now as well, isn't it? With tech and everything. Yeah, and curated information. So, you know, they live in a curated world. And this is why Gen Z is so important to understand them. Is they've, they've grown up with their smartphones, right? They've grown up with the whole world of information in their hands, like no other generation before them. But that information is also curated. So when they look at their Instagram or their um, Snap or TikTok, whatever it's going to be, it's all very curated to them. Nobody's two profiles are the same and nobody's, you know, feeds are the same. So, and that summable interaction. So, yeah, so I left the world of PE and sport and rugby and entered this world. It's really interesting because when I left, as I have captained my country, I've captained my region, you know, I've played at World Cups, I've, I've played in Six Nations tournaments, I've, you know, I was head of uh, our level threes, um, pretty much achieved everything I could have achieved at that point. And then you walk away from both of them at the same time and then went into this business world. And it was like, I felt like Bambi trying to walk on ice. So I was going to events that I didn't even know if I should be there, but I just thought I better go because it's a business networking thing. And I remember going there, standing in the corner, you know, having a coffee and going, oh, okay. And then tweeting that I was there and then leaving without speaking to anybody for about a year. I was, it was horrific. <laughs> it's, it's, it's mad how you took such a risk. To, to just just dive into the deep end really but do you think that's what you liked about it was it a challenge for you and did you like that I think there's no doubt in my mind that sport has provided that resilience that confidence that um I, I say it's that burn burn the boats mentality right that's my favorite quote is you go you've got to go you know to achieve anything or to take the island you've got to burn the boats and I've always been like that. I've always been, we're either all in or we're not doing it. Um, so when I saw the young the young people, my students get excited about the fact that, you know, we were creating something and they were having an input in it and it could really make a difference to young lives. There's no way I could not then go make it happen when you're seeing their faces. Mm -hmm. And then and then you start to take prototypes out to the community and you start working with those who are most deprived, furthest from the labor market, living in poverty. Because if you can make it right for them, you can make it for the rest, right for the rest of the generation, right? So these are the ones that are often neglected because they're not on a KPI to get to university, right? So they're often neglected. So if we could make it work for them and then seeing their faces and seeing their demeanor change and these are ones that have probably been said you know you're not going to amount to much you're lucky if you get a GCSE or you know you're lucky if you get a job they may never have seen an adult go to work you know the bar was pretty low for these guys right but if we could put this in their hand and then say actually do you know what these like 5 10 15 opportunities are looking for somebody just like you and that could be anything from volunteering to you know um a level one course in the college or an introductory to something online you know it could be anything but that shift of Nobody wants me to actually, these organisations do want me. And the change, there's no way I could go backwards after seeing that. It must make them feel so good as well that, that to have that there and for people, for them to know that people actually, you know, there, there is something out there for me. That little bubble of instant gratification and this organisation wants me. I'm the one with the power. If I swipe yes, things can get moving. I didn't even know this existed. I didn't even know these this opportunity, this sector or this role existed. Um, and putting it right into their hands, yeah, it's, it's, we've seen actual demeanours change right in front of us from, you know, a uh, 17-year-old with his hood up thinking, oh, God, careers, I don't want to do anything like this, to, miss, miss, look at all these matches I've got, you know? Um, yeah, so, it's, and it doesn't need to be any harder than that. And this is, you know, I, I'm constantly talking to people about, we're not just changing 
a, a way of doing something. We're not just putting an app out there for the sake of it. We, we're changing behavior. And by changing behavior, we're changing outcomes. By changing outcomes, we're changing lives. Um, and that's why, that's what keeps me going. I've got a, you know, you can't see it, but my camera here, I got it. Will it help the 100,000? Have you heard the Olympic story about will it make the boat go faster? Yeah. Yeah. So the rowers did everything, all the 1% things they could do in the entire life that would help that boat go faster in the Olympics. So for me, it's like, when I get up in the morning, the first thing I see is, will it help the 100,000? Because I'm on a mission to mobilize 100,000 young people towards better paid, better skilled jobs. So everything I do is, will it help that 100,000? And and that helps, you know, that's the North Star of everything I do every day. Because I made a promise to 2,500 of those 100,000, and I ain't going back on that. And I love the fact that you actually have the input from the kids in your classroom about what they like and about what what's good for them so that you've created this thing now coming from some of their ideas as well like I think that's quite special I learned I learned a hard lesson on that mind and uh, you know I lost a lot of money early days on that because I was still adamant that we need to do a Facebook for careers and that's when when I was talking to people my age, my peers and my colleagues, I was like, we need to do a Facebook for careers. They got it because Facebook is our generation, right? Um, but when I went, in, you know, especially when I was out of school and, you know, in the summer, I'd be working with those who are most, most deprived, you know, in care and all kinds of different situations, um, you know, they weren't interested in the Facebook for careers. And I realized then that if I kept holding on to this, it was just going to die. What was important to me was our why. I was like, okay, let's regroup. What do I want to happen? I want young people to be matched with better jobs, better careers and all sorts like that and change the whole um, outlook. How do we need to do that? And I was like, well, let doesn't need to be how I perceive it. How do they perceive it? And once we started doing that, it just motored then. When it became the Tinder for careers they wanted, it just took on a whole other kind of kind of life and, and, and we've just accelerated ever since. And I think it's really important to anybody listening, if you're going to do something for young people, let young people run with it. I'm a massive advocate for it now. I didn't know it at the beginning, but I know it now. Where did the name actually come from for the app? Nobody ever asked me this. I'm so <laughs> glad you did. <laughs> so um, I had a bunch of names banging around. One of my friends caught me something similar to my future with an I or the, the future me or all sorts of things like this. It was, um, it was like, what, what do you want it to be? And it was like, well, we want young people to kind of control, take control of their careers. And it's all about their their future, grab control of their future. And it's, you know, the future is mine. And then we just kind of playing around with these words. And we took, okay, future is mine, so my, mine, and then future. And we just slammed both of them together. And but I didn't commit to it. We, we still had a few others. So every time we were doing a session with the young people and taking the prototype out there, we didn't really have a name. Um, it was okay, okay, we got to like three different ideas. What do you think? And we always made them vote with post-it notes. And it was like, my future was up on the board and there was two other ones as well. And they always, my future always had the most post-it notes. So even though we kind of come up with it ourselves by merging, you know, the, the purpose of what we wanted the app to be, it was the young people that actually decided that that was what it was going to be called. It's really inspirational to see that you're using tech for good as well and just trying to make a change and, and it's something that you seem very passionate about. So I think I think that's very, very inspirational. Yeah, I think just on that, I think I always get pigeon, originally I was always pigeonholed as a tech entrepreneur. And it sounds really cool, right? Let's be honest. I didn't know nothing other than sport and PE. So to be called a tech entrepreneur all of a sudden, I thought like, I'm Mark Zuckerberg around the place. Um, <laughs> but it didn't resonate at all. Like, I'll ride it just for now it opens doors, right? So I'll ride that, no problem. I'm a lot more, you know, I've been doing this four years now. So I'm a lot wiser. And, you know, I know how to angle things a lot better now. But at the, at the beginning, um, you know, we were being, I was being pegged as this, you know, female tech entrepreneur, blah, blah, blah. And it just didn't resonate at all. And I couldn't understand why I felt so uncomfortable with that. And I just thought I just need to grow into this, right? You, you know, with all the other roles in the past, you grow into me, you're confident you are that person. Um, but it, it, it never did. And then um, I remember having a coffee with a, a mentor of mine and he just said, well, Gem, you're not a tech entrepreneur, are you? And I was like, oh what do you mean? And he said, well, no, you're a social entrepreneur. You're a purposeful entrepreneur. You're just using tech as the vehicle. And I just stopped in my tracks. And I just, 
I just I took this big deep breath and this whole tension just lifted from me and it, it is it's like if the solution would have been um a book I would have done a book right if the solution was a skateboard I would have made a skateboard I read it to me it didn't matter what the solution was what matters is the outcome and the fact that they said it needs to be a tinder for, it needs to be an app forget all the online stuff it's got to be an app and all this other AI stuff we're bringing in as well doesn't excite me at all what excites me is the outcome so yes I'm a I'm a social entrepreneur that's using tech as a as a vehicle and so it's I'm in more of the tech for good category now that suits me a lot better than a tech entrepreneur so what are there any plans for the app for the future and what are your personal goals for this year do you know my, my personal goals have changed um let me talk about the app first though that's more important so uh what we've been learning over the past three years with young people was the the instant gate the instant gratification that i mentioned earlier and you know how powerful gamification is as part of their lifestyle their online behavior and gaming in general so i remember sta- standing in the job center once so we were just doing this kind of market research we were interacting with people and we were interacting with people a little bit outside of our cohort age as well and nearly everybody in between there was lots of different companies in there doing their little bit and every time the activities stopped phones were coming out and they were playing games and it was like all different age groups now and i was just like wow there was like 40 year old women playing like pop bubbles and all stuff like that there was boys picking up their phone and they were playing whatever games they were playing and i was just like right okay that's really interesting because I'm, I'm a watcher which is really weird that sounds weird but i like to just watch people interact with our app and what they're doing and where, what what else they're doing when they're not using our app um so i kind of thought oh that's really interesting so i went away and i learned about gamification and stuff like that and i learned about duolingo and what the journey duolingo have been on was what they do for learning language skills i was like okay well can we take what duolingo have done this our cohort or the people we want to use in our app got this innate need to jump onto their games and play can we learn from that and then i want to move them into our priority growth sectors where the jobs of the future are where you know we've got things like um fintech cyber engineering construction um care as well um digital we've got all these roles that are massive skill gaps that need a pipeline of young talent to which are right here on our doorsteps in wales each region have got their own what if we could take all of that without having to actually teach them about all this exists and just slam it into some games and now as young people can play games so you know just like duolingo and other apps you play games but instead of getting high scores and rings and coins and things like that you get matched with hey there's this opportunity down the road there's this apprenticeship up the street or you know there's this course at the local college or um you know this cyber workshop wants you to join type thing based on your skills um so we were exploring that that's brand that doesn't exist anyway i've tried to find somebody to partner on us for that but we've got to start from scratch which is really exciting but also really daunting but it's exciting the young people. So that's what fires me on. So in a nutshell, where we're going next is we're gamifying employability skills and rewarding people with jobs of the future. So that's really exciting. Again, something I, something I never expected to be, right? <laughs> but you've got, to, you've got to let them lead, right? So by their innate behavior to want a game, like, let's run with that then. Let's not try and put something else in the way. Yeah, so that's where we're going next. But me as an individual, I think this goes back to thinking I'm a tech entrepreneur for a while as well. When I, uh, when I was, when I retired from rugby and left teaching pretty much at the same time, I always wanted to go back to traveling. So I spent a year playing in New Zealand. I plenty, spent a year playing in Australia and I always wanted to do, do more traveling. And I said, well, once this takes off, it's a digital thing. It'll kind of look after itself. I can work from anywhere in the world. And then you get kind of pigeonholed as a tech entrepreneur. You need to have this office in Cardiff. You need the CTO, a CMO, a CFO, and all of these. And and you need to be a CEO, and you need to you know build up this massive tech team in Cardiff and have fancy offices and all stuff like that. And for about you know two years, I thought that's what I had to do. But you know, you know, if anything, this pandemic has taught us is like we don't need none of that. We can scale right back. Like I could be now if I had my vaccine I would be in California right now because I can run this from anywhere and I think I didn't see me going back to that but 
this pandemic has made me stop made me realize okay what's going to really set my soul on fire now it's doing this instead of doing this in rainy bather for the last 18 you know the last what are we in now 12 months of lockdown I could have been anywhere and I just think it makes you reevaluate life right and you know what's a necessity and what's just feeding your ego all that stuff where it just fed our, our ego let's drop it we've already got a great team we don't need more than we've got right now and let's let that team be free do you have any advice for I, I want to know both sides so any women in sport or starting to come up through the ranks in sport or for anyone who may want to start their own business in both in in both of them you've just you've got to go all in I if you want to succeed you've got to go all in you have to make sacrifices and as crap as that sounds it's it's worth it I think probably you know one of my greatest achievements is that I played for my country but it wasn't friggin easy even though we are from a much smaller player base than other national sports and things like that it none of it came easy you have to fight um but as long as it's for something you enjoy doing it's it's not fight it's passion right passion feeds that that fight um so for, for both, you've got to go all in. Um, I left teaching, and I say this because I had such a great uh, um, support network around me. I know that's not the case for everybody, but if you have the support network around you, just jump right in because that time is going to go anyway. Like this has taken four, we're into our fifth year of building this and we're still classed as a startup, right? We're still just about, um even on revenue now right so we're still not out of the startup phase at all I've enjoyed every minute of it it's gone in a blink of an eye and my rugby career 15 years went in a blink of an eye but if I didn't go all in I'd have regrets right so for me my advice to anybody is if you're passionate about it just go all in why not just jump you'll learn how to do it on the way down right I am exactly <laughs> you have no other choice <laughs> no other choice but to learn yeah so at the end of the podcast we ask three questions nothing to do with your life in general just just to for our listeners to know a little bit more about you so the first question is can you tell me something unique about yourself that not many other people would know I have a 92 year old pen pal in New Zealand really <laughs> I don't think anyone knows that. Who did that come about? <laughs> the only reason that's just come up in my mind is because I just replied to him before this call. Yeah. yeah, so when I went to New Zealand after the 2010 World Cup and um, was playing for a team in uh, Nelson in the Marlborough region and I was doing some waitressing and I was an awful waitress, worst waitress you've ever seen. And um, I was just, there was this old couple that were on holidays from the North Island to the South and they were there every night for a week um, so I didn't do any work. I just sat with them talking to them. And we stayed, that was in 2011, I think. And we've been pen pals ever since, emails pen pals ever since. So the second question is, who is your idol and why? So bad that I can't just answer that off the top of my head, eh? I think I have different idols for different parts of of life. I In, in business, any any woman that champions another woman is an idol of mine um I think we're very lucky in Wales that we we don't have unfortunately we don't have um massive female business successes which is really disappointing we have a few but they've left Wales and they kind of tend to come back maybe really later in life and don't really want to re-engage again um we've got one now who's heading up Starling Bank she was born in Swansea um, but she went to London in, you know, for uni and, and didn't come back and set up a massive bank in London. So it'd be really great if, if she came back. But what we have got in Wales is a network of women that will champion each other and will open doors for other women. I think that's really quite unique. I didn't think that would work outside of the sports world. So I think I'm really lucky that I have that. I have those, you know, they're not people that would want to be put on a pedestal, but for me, in the rugby world, there was those that open doors for others. And in the business world, there's, there's those that open doors for others. And make sure that you're spoken about in a positive way when you're not in the room. And to me, they they are idols, right? You aspire to, to, to be like them. Yeah, women supporting women. <laughs> so the last question, I think you may, may have already um, mentioned it, but what is your favourite quote and why? Oh, okay. Yes. So... Um, this has been accredited to lots of different people, but I believe the first person that 
that actually said this was Captain Cortez of the Spanish something back in 1917, 16 dot dot, whatever it was. But he said, if you're going to take the island, you've got to burn the boats. So I've also got, you can't see it, I've also got burn the boats up on my whiteboard as well. And it, it's going back to that, you've got to go all in, right? Because if you, if you give yourself a reason to get off that island or to backtrack or to, you know, run away, you will. But if you, you land on that island and you burn the boats, it's absolutely, you have to succeed, right? Um, and I've done it in rugby um, when it came to, you know, you have to give the coach every reason to pick you, right? You, you can't leave a reason out. So, you know, you burn the boats, you go all in, you do everything you can to get selected. Um, and then obviously when I left teaching and, and rugby and, you know, I burnt every single boat bridge or every bit of wood available to me to, to make this happen. So that is um, without doubt my favourite quote by Captain Cortez. If you want to take the island, burn the boat. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I, obviously, I'm saying thank you on behalf of me and Gabby. But I really, really enjoyed listening to your story and your journey so far. It, it sounds so inspirational. And you seem so passionate about what you do. You know, you seem passionate about rugby. You seem passionate about you now in the tech industry and, and making a change for people's lives. And yeah, I think our listeners will really enjoy listening to your story. And it's, it's really refreshing as well to hear that you want to make a change and you want to make an impact and you stand up for what's right you stand up for women so um, and that's what our podcast is all about really so thank you very much for taking the time out to uh, speak to us it's been brilliant thank you no thank you very much thank you for what you're doing you're you're being those women that are opening doors for other women you're you know you're part of that group that, that, I, that I idolize and aspire to be so thank you Gabriella and Darcy so much for giving us a platform and, and shining a light on so many women that's a wrap on episode 11 of She Has a Goal in Mind. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. And if you did enjoy it, please don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review. And also follow us on social media at A Goal in Mind podcast for updates.